Hi, this is Kev Lakes Walker, and you are about to hear a podcast of an interview that appeared on Shades of Blues here on The Cat. And there will be plenty more as we delve into the archives. Sit back and enjoy. I'm delighted to say I'm now joined on the phone by Johnny Iguana, all the way from Chicago. Are you actually in Chicago at the moment? Absolutely. Right, right, because you originally grew up in Philadelphia, didn't you? Yeah, I, I was born in New Jersey, grew up in Philadelphia, lived in New York City briefly, and that's where I met Junior Wells on a chance uh, encounter uh, at a well-known music venue in in, um, in New York City, right at a time where he was looking for a piano player, and uh, moved out to Chicago for what I thought would be two or three years, but it's been 20, uh, 26 years. Uh, yeah, I mean, you started playing piano way back at the age of eight, didn't you? Yeah, and and I was lucky that I, uh, you know, unlike all my friends that were listening to, you know, new wave and pop music and you know and that kind of thing, um, my uncle sent me some records, including Junior Wells' Hoodoo Man Blues and Jimmy Smith's Organ Grinder Swing, and uh, a cassette mix he made that had Lonnie Mack and the Treneers and all kinds of good R and B stuff on it, and so you know that was not what. Uh, was really like known among uh, you know fifteen year olds in my Philadelphia suburbs there. So, so I got into all that, and I also met a guitar player I started playing in bands with at that age, who was really into Charlie Parker and and uh, Dizzy Gillespie and 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 uh, Hank Mobley and all kinds of really good jazz stuff. And so we used to sit around, get dressed up in suits and ties, and listen to <laughs> listen to that music. And and then we started playing the in a blues band together. So, <clears throat> so I got. And we just happened to have a lot of Junior Wells records among our collection that we uh, amassed. And um, that's why it was exciting to meet Junior and also to feel kind of qualified to join his group because out of anybody, I knew more of his tracks and I had kind of played those songs night in, night out. So I was I always said it would have been great to get like the B.B. King gig or something like that, but I wouldn't have been as qualified for it. I don't Yeah. Think. That group you referred to there with your young friend, was that Stevie Lizard and his Reptile Orchestra? It was, and you know, I was dubbed Johnny Iguana somewhat spontaneously because the bass player was being called Bobby Iguana and I was brought in ostensibly as his brother, Johnny Iguana. So so, uh, it was kind of just, he anointed me that and it was good fun. And then later when I joined the Junior Wells Band as a sort of... um, you know, in amazement, here I am playing with Junior Wells, and then after that touring with Otis Rush, after I, I had played their songs in a in a band when I was 15 in Philadelphia, never imagining I'd even meet the people with those names, those, uh, you know, iconic figures for mm. us. Um, uh, I just resurrected that name because it was just, that was my blues name. That's how people know me ever since. You were saying that those around you, your school friends or whatever, were listening to New Wave and that kind of thing. What was it about the blues that drew you to that? It was really, you know, I was I was hooked like a fish from the first note. I mean, I assume you have spun Hoodoo Man Blues many times. Mm-hmm. You know, the tra- what track one is on that record? Uh, no, no. <laughs> Snatch it back and hold it. Right. It starts with a big, bad, sharp nine chord on, a, on Buddy Guy's guitar, and then Junior comes in, and it sounds like James Brown meets Chicago blues, you know, and... And right from the the minute I heard that, it was just something to turn up, and it had a it had the same thing about it that made me love the Clash and Wire and you know all, and Husker Du and all this punk stuff I was listening to. So um, I just kind of worked my way backwards. Eventually, when I was 
by the time I came out here to Chicago, I started hearing a lot older blues, wartime blues, Sonny Boy Williamson the first, that kind of thing, and mm-hmm. and discovered that it, it, it's not as antique and uh, kind of historical and you know conservatory studies kind of thing as I might have thought. You know, it's well, really well, it's I mean, really alive. It's really gritty. I mean, the the, the way the real players, the, the 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 people that made the music famous are not cheesy in their music like the kind of thing you go see at a live blues bar you're kind of taking a chance sometimes it's good sometimes it's not but mm. the people that made the music famous are like electrifying you know uh artists and and uh so it wasn't hard for me to once you know what you know it's like any kind of music if you have a good curator you you can you could be turned on to it any kind of music or art or anything and i i was lucky enough to have that yeah and the thing is with some of those songs the lyrics are timeless. They're, they're relevant in the seventies, eighties, even today. Oh yeah, well yeah, that's true. I mean, I mean that's why you know Willie Dixon is such a such a hero here in Chicago. That that uh, his, those songs spread like wildfire and became almost like Hank Williams songs. You know, just elemental, simple songs that everyone can relate to, and that every band wants. You know, millions of bands wants to want to cover. You know, like that's just kind of like, wow. Someone already wrote this. Like <laughs> that's yeah. easy. That part's done. <laughs> you mentioned the Clash and people like that. I was looking at your musical inspirations, and you've got Otis Spann and Ray Charles, but then you've also got Joe Strummer and Captain Beefheart. So it wasn't just solely blues that you were listening to. No, as a matter of fact, since I, since I was fifteen, the the year before I was legally able to drive here in the U.S. Um, when my mother was taking me to band practices and that kind of thing, um, I was ever since then. I've always been in a couple of bands at the same time. I feel that that's really important for my headspace uh, and for my perspective. Like uh, when I'm in a a band that's playing kind of punky original music, and and then I go play with blues guys and we're doing that, and then come back from one to the other. I, I find I just get a better read on it. I don't know. You just don't get too immersed in one thing. I find that I can uh, I can make adjustments and and improvements. In each in each music, and it just also balances me out. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I, I'm not. Uh, I'm, I'm, I mean, I, when I was playing piano at first, I was playing classical, and, and to this day, when I sit down at the piano, probably two thirds of the time, I'll take out some sheet music and play classical, and that's what I find. You know, when people say like, "What music really makes you cry?" or "What music do you play when you're feeling really down?" and it's actually it's classical. It's it's uh, Chopin and Satie. That some of that music. Talk about timeless, you know the, the the melodies and just the flowing rivers of the of the of how your fingers produce those melodies. It's just I find very soothing. Blues to me is more like the, what I love is the spontaneity of it and the and the dialogue, you know, between the musicians and it's just exciting. It's always it's a kind of a high wire act. Like I realize when people that are good musicians but aren't used to playing blues try to sit in or do some of that, they find it like they're very clumsy. You know, I've just been doing it a long time and I find it easy in a in a way that's like like home you know it's just uh i know that language it's almost as i guess like you know friends who speak french fluently it's like i feel like i i've been speaking that for so long i feel like i do speak it fluently and it's it's not a stressful situation ever to sit in playing blues yeah playing with the different styles and different genres some of the techniques must cross over from blues to punk from punk to blues well, you know, they say that that blues are the roots and the rest of the fruits. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and you know, uh, <clears throat> even music that purports to have. I mean, there are there is some music that I, you know, pe- people in the blues scene here in Chicago like to say that like all 
all music comes from the blues, like popular music since then. There's a whole lot that I can listen to and go, hmm, I don't really, <laughs> I'm really not hearing any, any blues in this. And it's not just the changes, it's just something uh, ineffable that it, it doesn't seem to come from that. But then again, uh, on the flip side, there's a lot of music that you listen to and you're like, oh, this is really just like, this is really, these are blues changes, or this, this is blues. And that can be. That can be something you're hearing in Kraftwerk or Motorhead. You know, you can hear something. I mean, you know, you know Motorhead where you know Lemmy was into blues. You can mm. hear it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And there's a, there's a lot. Obviously, guitar rock, like most of it, other than like extreme metal, you you would certainly hear. And obviously, Black Sabbath. Those guys were like everyone else in England then playing blues, and you can you know that Tony was <laughs> was huge into the blues guitar heroes. You know. Well, there's a feature I have on my other show called The Beatles Bit, where I have people covering Beatles songs. And the number yeah. of blues-style versions of Beatles songs is just astounding. But uh, you were part of a, a Rolling Stones cover album, weren't you? Yeah, that was an idea. You know, Larry Scholar, who produced my uh, my new Delmark album, um, he produced Chicago Plays the Stones, and I, I, he had me do all the piano on it. And, and that was the idea was, uh, clearly, the Stones. You know, there's all these mythical stories of the of the Stones and their their adoration of Muddy Waters and coming to Chess Studios and all that, and and coming and playing at the checkerboard. And there's that video where the Stones are watching Muddy Waters when John Primer, you know, was on on this new record of mine playing at a checkerboard and then getting up on stage with them. And so um, the Stones. You know, Larry's idea was that the Stones came out of that and loved those. Chicago blues classic so much that that what a, what if Chicago blues artists kind of um, you know flip the mirror and just uh, and do Rolling Stones songs but but do it in in the style of Chicago blues you know mm. so that was really fun to sort of turn the Stone songs that had blues inside them and just lift the blues to the top to the surface. I can imagine that the meetings to choose the songs were quite heated sometimes. Larry, Larry, yes, I, I, you know, has some collaborators on some of his records where they're choosing their repertoire. He, he sort of, um, I think he, he sort of, by the time he in, invited the musicians, that part was set already. So I wasn't privy to those conversations, but, but I think that, um, that he, he probably had that fight out with somebody else yeah. in advance. And then they settled on, here's, here's 12 songs and 10 will be on the record or whatever it is, you know? And, and, um, and they, they, they had demos made up already of kind of the idea of how, we would do them and in some cases it involved and a lot of cases it involved changing the chord structures it wasn't just like changing the rhythms it was changing the chords because some of those changes have some blues in them but they're some changes that are outside of the blues vernacular you know so so um we actually got together as the musicians in a room and 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 said well what if we went to this change here and that still works with that melody that kind of thing you know or change the melody and you know, a little bit, and and also who's going to sing and who's going to play what part. So that part was really fun to work out in the studio. So, have you had any feedback from uh, Mr. Jagger and Mr. Richards? <laughs> oh, those guys never call. They never write. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, it, it was it was really cool. I mean, you know, just as with Buddy. Uh, on that record, those people weren't in the studio bodily with with the rest of us. We laid down all the tracks, and they 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 recorded another time, another place. Um, but um, I I don't I don't know if Larry even himself um, he must have communicated at some point with them because they had to decide who was going to play and play what and mm. sing what. And I know that Mick played uh, harmonica. Yeah, on uh, on his tune. Well, talking of all-star casts, your latest album, Johnny Iguana's Chicago Spectacular, 
there's a plethora of stars on that. Were these people you invited, or did they contact you? Um, Larry and I went through, we, we kind of um, conceived the album as a tribute to the great, like a definitive Chicago blues piano album where you're, we, we picked songs that had different Chicago blues piano greats um, playing the original sessions, the original tracks. And then we figured out who in Chicago that's alive and here that we know we wanted to make this, you know, the Chicago record. So we wanted to um, pick from Chicago blues artists who's, who should sing and play on these tracks. And we went through kind of one by one and figured that out. And, and we chose from people that we knew and have worked with. Um, so, um, you know, Bob Margolin, I've, I've, I've played on the road with and also on that Stones record. Um, and uh, I play with Kenny Smith, the drummer, all the time, and Billy Flynn, the guitar player. And Billy Boy Arnold, I'm really lucky that he, I mean, I call him a friend. He's been at two parties at my house. We've, you know, t we've done several international tours together and spent a lot of hours just talking, talking about music and other things. And uh, he, Billy Boy is actually the one that got me really familiar with the original Sonny Boy Williamson and some Brunzi uh, records because he mails, he, occasionally he mails me a hand-burned CD or cassette of his favorite sessions of Sonny Boy Williamson the first and, and Big Bill Brunzi, and he notates them with a pen, you know, on a piece of paper in the insert. It's pretty darling, really. Uh, and he's, uh, you know, he, he'll highlight a certain track and say, and they call me and say, listen to the piano on that one. You know, that's Blind John Davis, or that's, that's Maceo on that one. And he's, he was the one that always said that Joshua Altimer, who was the piano player for Big Bill Brunzi that only lived to his late 20s, and very little is known about him biographically. There's almost no information. Um, he said that 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 everyone was saying he was the best piano player in, in America, you know, and and he just tragically died so young. But so he's the one that kind of got me listening to that style and realizing how you know very different it is than you know kind of set the table for what came later with uh, Sunnyland and Span and all that. But it does not. It, it's very different. It's a really flowing, you know. It, kind of style up and down the piano it's really kind of graceful and pretty difficult you know to sort of try to imitate but from the beginning we knew that there wasn't much point in imitating any of these piano players it was a tribute to them but to be to be really good and effective and to move people you have to be yourself as cliche as that sounds yeah but so i i think i play like myself across the record but but make slight adjustments on the very last song um, hot dog mama which i actually was happy that I was able to introduce that song to, to Billy Boy, because I, I just found it on YouTube, just, just searching for songs, and thought it had a really cool, singular kind of, just like it has like a driving foot uh, ba uh, bass drum stomp through the whole thing, and I thought that was really different than everything else we'd chosen. And um, so, but I did for that, I even called the piano player in St. Louis to say, I can't quite wrap my head around the piano in this kind of style of like, what things to do and what things not to do, and he actually sent me a phone voice memo saying, okay, like when you go to the four, don't change this, and, and when you and, and don't play this kind of figure. That that's a giveaway that you're like in the '60s instead of the, instead of the early '40s here. Um, so he just kind of gave me a couple of pointers, and they made good sense. And I practiced. That's the one I practiced the most to try to really get inhabit that style. But but mostly, you know, it was important to Larry that I was myself on this record, including the four instrumental compositions, because it's just kind of boring to listen to someone imitate people. You know, if you're if you're if you're interested in Albert King, you really, no one's gonna make an Albert King tribute album and imitate him to the point where you say, "I like that just as much." Mm, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. There'll never be another. How much of this was recorded before the pandemic hit? Luckily, all of it. We we recorded it um, 
as happens with, with records too often and pretty much every time in my case, with, whether it's my band, the Claudettes, or, or in this case, um, by the time you record it, you then get it mixed, you then get it mastered, you then kind of post it on a private web page, and then you start sharing it with record labels, and you have discussions, and then you get some nibbles, and then you have some dialogue, and you get together and meet, and then there's some friendly debate, and then there are lawyers. At, <laughs> that, that, what I just described takes at least a year. Right. You know? So, right. so, so <clears throat> we recorded that in January of, um, of, uh, of 2019, um, and then it got mixed and mastered, and then and then I spoke with a bunch of different labels, and I was very, very, very happy that Delmark wanted to put it out and had me up to their office. And you know, Julia and Elbio have been at the helm of of Delmark since since they acquired it about five years ago, forty four five years ago. And um, they're very innovative, and they're very inspired to to um, preserve the legacy of the label, but do some new things too, and also to stay aware uh, stay abreast of you know changes in the music business which are vast and unspeakable <laughs> so um so by the time that was all done and we kind of came up with a plan we set a release date and so it, so it was c- comfortably done before the pandemic i mean and unfortunately you know i would be with that and also having put out a claudette's record this year my band the claudette's we i i would have a completely full calendar of shows i was going to be in england twice uh, in 2020, two different occasions in London and Leak in May, and then uh, there was a full fuller tour planned for November. And not only not only aren't those happening, but um, I think the booking agency might be out of business. So, right. Pretty bleak. So, I mean, this is something that we're coming across everyone that I speak to that had albums due to release, or they have released albums just as the pandemic hit, gigs planned and everything. Yeah. Um, so, is everything still on hold? Well, you you know you have to. I I I don't I don't know. <laughs> I, I've been trying to come up with a, a colorful spin on the expression when someone says you know that some of the glass is half empty person or a glass is half full and something to do with smashing the glass all together. Twenty twenty field. But um, I'm definitely the uh, of the um, uh, you know my character is to um, not just kind of hide in a corner and see what happens. Come out and rub my eyes and look into the sunshine and, and see if the world is back. Um, instead, I'm really hardcore planning for, uh, uh, you know, I, I made a speech at this Claudette show that we had in October where it occurred to me that morning, and I said, the Spanish flu was 1918, the duration of the pandemic was two years, and then what came next? The Roaring Twenties, the Art, Art Deco and... Um, and Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong and Jazz Age. It's like maybe, and it's the 20s again. So maybe, you know, not only will be we be creeping back into, you know, collecting together and communing with each other, but maybe there's going to be so much pent-up fatigue. With, you know, fatigue won't, won't be for masks and social distancing, but it'll be for Netflix and TV, you know. Just, yeah. I, used to, I used to complain to the missus all the time that I'm like, I don't want to just sit and watch like the hot new show on TV. I want to go out and get into like a bar brawl, you know. <laughs> I want to, I want to like, have real experiences. I want to, I want to be playing backgammon in a bar, drinking sherry, and flip the board over when my opponent upsets me, and get into you know that, that that's real life, you know. That, that, I want that again. So I've been filming. Um, I, I got the musicians together, and you know everyone had masks, and we kept our distance, and we had a quick rehearsal, and then we went and we filmed. We took the masks off just for the filming. 
we filmed ourselves. Uh, we were so so prepared that the filming was very quick. Um, playing songs for this Chicago Spectacular album. Bill Dickens, the bass player who played on the instrumentals, who's fantastic. He's played with Chaka Khan and Stevie Wonder. I mean, he's like, he's pretty, he's the guy, and he's a friend, and he's really really psyched about this record. He's excited about the record and what we did on it. And, and Michael Caskey is the drummer on those instrumentals. I've been playing with him for 20 years. He's like one of my favorite drummers I've ever met and seen. And uh, so the two of us, and then Philip Michael Scales, who sang the Gil Scott Heron song, he's B.B. King's nephew, and he's he's always been playing kind of uh, in original music. He calls it like indie soul music. And he's got quite a lot of views on, I mean, quite a lot of plays on on, on Spotify and stuff, a lot more than I do. I mean, he's really like kind of getting known in those circles, but he's always kind of avoided blues as sort of his birthright, but he's got it in him. And so he's gotten excited. And, and so he's going to go on the road with us as a, as a front man, because we needed, you know, little Ed and John Primer and Billy Boy Arnold, they've all got their own things going and they probably won't be available for touring. But so I've got a band here that is, and we went and we filmed ourselves doing songs and we're going to post it up on a private page along with all the press the album is getting and and we're going to start booking festivals and 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 theaters and stuff mostly overseas they might or might not happen but we're going to pretend like everything's just hunky-dory and you know you've got to sort of plan for it and then if it doesn't happen then it doesn't happen but if you don't plan for it then you're you're you know you're you're lost and left if it if it if it uh if it does happen and you you didn't plan so yeah that's what i'm doing is there going to be a Chicago Spectacular Volume 2? <laughs> um, I, I, you know, <laughs> right now, I uh, part, part of the real answer to that question, I, I'd love to put a sunnier answer on it, but, but I'm standing here in my office surrounded by boxes of LPs and CDs that I wasn't able to sell in 2020. I was able to spend the money on making the record, but I wasn't able to, to recoup it by selling mm. the record. I mean, the label is selling it, and it's... It's selling like in in the online marketplace, but these days the record store is the tour van and there's tour yeah. bus. <laughs> that's the, that's the record store, and, and those are all parked. So um, the thought of making another record soon is is not is not at the top of my mind because yeah. I mean I do want to go out and play a lot of shows, and I'm writing and playing all the time, but the the actual expense involved is is not forthcoming. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, well, fully understand. I hope that. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope. That will change around, and maybe, maybe someone else, some mysterious benefactor, a Dickensian benefactor, will will uh, uh, rear his head and and uh, pay for it. But as of right now, that those practical concerns are uh, kind of daunting, you know. Mm. Well, I'm inspired by your optimism. Hopefully, we will get to see you over in the UK sometime soon. And thank you for taking the time out to do this. Oh, thank you. Uh, oh, we we were supposed to play at the 100 Club in London the Claudettes were, which I know has quite a history, and we'd been booked into a venue in Leek. Um, I've played in Nottingham. I've played in uh, Blackheath. Uh, I actually did a, uh, I had a band called Oh My God, and we did a tour of UK. We did a tour of England and Scotland. and So I played over there quite a bit, and uh, I very much am, am crossing my fingers and betting that, that I'll be there in 2021. I mean, I know I'll be there in 2022, but I want to, I'm very much pulling for 2021 at this point, and maybe by summer we'll be alive again. Hey, thanks so much for calling. Not a problem. You take care, my friend, and uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime. Yeah, and hopefully we'll be at the same festival or event uh, next year. Yes. Let's keep in touch. Okay. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. 
And I hope you enjoyed that little interview there. And there will be more as we record more for the show. And we are going to delve into the archives and pull some of the old ones out as well. So plenty more to come. And of course, if you want to hear the whole show, there is always Listen Again. I'll see you next time. Take care.